Welcome to this tasting platter edition of Meet Me at the Museum, where I'll be offering you some delicious pieces of audio to digest. There'll be cockles, whelks and oysters by the dozen, as I bring you some of my favourite episodes with a seaside flavour from the past eight seasons. I'm Carrie Morrison, a presenter who grew up in a town called Worthing on the south coast. And I know better than most that the UK's coasts attract some of the most interesting characters amid some stunning scenery. So slap on the sunscreen and grab your brolly just in case, because today we'll be seeing what the tide drags in with gallery director and author Robert Diamond in Margate. We might see the tip of his head. Fun times. <laughs> Getting frank and personal with Marwan Rizwan with his mum in Brighton. Oh, you missed out bisexual. Oh, bisexual. Yeah. Okay, yes. Now I know. But first, we take a trip to the azure skies and seas of St Ives, Cornwall, with British art historian Katie Hessel and her friend Helen Downing. Helen is an artist who works under the moniker Unskilled Worker, which is rather ironic as she is a highly skilled artist. But what is certain is that both women are huge fans of sculptor and artist Barbara Hepworth. While Yorkshire might claim Barbara as their own, given it's the county of her birth, St Ives is where she settled at the outbreak of the Second World War until her death in 1975. Her beautiful former studio and garden have been preserved and form part of the Barbara Hepworth Museum and Sculpture Garden. Katie and Helen spoke to Sarah Maxson, a curator at the museum, and basked in the glory of some of the bronze sculptures on display in the garden. So we're standing in front of Riverform, which um, is a bronze, and, you know, she's contrasted in her usual fashion the interior of the work, which has, you know, clearly been carved out in the original form. But what's lovely about this work, and now it's placed in the garden, mm. is, of course, it does something else. It collects water in yeah, its... it's called Riverform, and yeah. there's almost like a river yeah. in it. It's crazy. Exactly. What we were looking at with her timeline was the fact that, you know, she was exhibiting around the world, you know, even in her 20s, 20s and 30s. I mean, where did she get that determination? Do you think she even faced many challenges in her life? I, oh gosh, yes. You know, she was um, not only a woman artist uh, working in a world that was very much, you know, a male-dominated uh, profession, but she was a sculptor. Her contemporaries were, you know, kind of um, the big guns of the sculptural world. Henry Moore, for example... But I think, um, you know, one of the things about Hepworth was the fact that she was a consummate networker and um, she knew very carefully and very strategically how to promote her work and put herself in a position where um, she would gain, you know, a certain amount of critical acclaim. You know, she was constantly creating opportunities for herself, you know, from exhibitions she knew key writers of the time, for example, like Herbert Reed and um, uh, Paul Houdin, and undertake, you know, big commissions like, for example, Winged Figure, you know, in the early 1960s, as well as um, Single Form, which, you know, stands outside of um, the UN. Are we allowed to look in the workshop? Yes, of course. So I've just brought you into the stone carving studio and uh, we've just come through the yard where she carved. Is it exactly as it was? you still got a sense of all of her tools and um, working materials from sandpapers. Um, you know, there's still marble chippings here. Incredible. 
Yeah. But you've got, you know, um, sculptures in progress here. So, you know, the sort of start um, of the form being chipped away yeah. and, you know, the texture of the marble being shown here. So very strong. Yes. Well, she was exceptionally tenacious in character and, um, you know, physically. I mean, her health was deteriorating towards, you know, the end of her life. But, um, yes, in the 70s, she um, carved an extraordinary number of marble works. In my own work, when I'm very, very stressed or upset, I find working quite difficult. I have a feeling it was the opposite for her. She probably chiselled away, yeah. hammered in yeah. to get that anger out or something. Maybe. Yeah, but the, the work doesn't come across it as angry in any way. No. There seems to be forever a kind of softness of gentleness, like everything's rounded and... Yeah. ..and uh, very... ..maternal, really. The um, work that's in the studio. Do you want to go and have a look? Actually, yeah, should we go sure. and talk about that? So this is a sculpture with colour, which is one of a series of works that she'd started um, just as she was leaving London. And so she'd started stringing in the late 1930s, yeah. and you know it begins this kind of dialogue with these um, sort of oval forms and, you know, um, her interest in kind of um, articulating both the core and the surface of the work and the kind of tension between the two of them. This series of work that, uh, you know, has this sort of intense colour um, that's also sort of played out in a number of drawings that she made sort of throughout, you know, the war years when um, materials were very scarce and time was scarce and she was looking after the children and she's yeah. working on her lap, you know, in her bedroom. You know, they have this um, beautiful kind of primary colours that highlight the, um, you know, very centre or core of these forms. Can you tell us a bit about Epiduros? So Epiduros was one of the sculptures that um, she made following her trip in 1954 um, to the Greek islands with Margaret Gardner. Paul Skeeping, her son, died in 1953 um, in the RAF uh, over Malaya. That must Quite have been the most lost. traumatic, to lose her son. To lose her son and yeah. also, um, you know, in the, in the early 50s, her marriage was dissolving from uh, Ben Nicholson. Right. And, you know, this sense of maternal, you know, is very much um, prevalent in this um, group of works. So much of her work seems to be about embrace yeah. and kind of yeah. protectiveness. Yeah. And there's this kind of larger shape, maybe the mother or something, and then there's very fragile strings or fragile kind of twists and turns with the bronze or the plaster or the marble or something. There's something very vulnerable about the work as well. I think her work, you know, is very much about um, her response to the world. She wanted to make work that was kind of an antidote to the war, an antidote to tragedy. It's not uh, getting stuck with the war. It wasn't trying to express that. It was yes. trying to express yes. what it could be, what we could have. Yes. It's lovely. Mm. If you think um, what the work was about, like the, her reaction to the Second World War yeah. was very feminine in itself. It, it wasn't about talking about the aggression of the Second World War. It was about finding hope and love, really, mm. you know, and, and gentleness. And that's what, what everybody needed to be healed. And I felt so emotional because so often I think I can feel like my work needs to shock or be aggressive in some way to make an impact. Uh, and it just made me feel so much better about what I do. My work is just the way that it comes out. And that's, 
how can work be so different yet it wants to express a very similar way? And what are your thoughts on Barbara Hepworth being one of the most prominent female artists ever? I mean, I've worked with Hepworth, I like to think, um, for sort of 17 years now. I'm continually inspired by her achievements and how she forged a career for herself Mm. at quite a difficult time. I think there's so much more to explore and discover about her work, but I'm also overwhelmed by the endurance that it has, you know, and the fact that you can put her work within a mixed show of artists, modern and contemporary, and she stands up every time. But, you know, interest in her work continues to grow. People are discovering her work and exploring her work and reinterpreting her work all the time, and I think, you know, that's a mark of a really significant artist. And for those who also want to get up close and personal with Barbara Hepworth's majestic sculptures, a National Art Pass gets you 50% off entry. From West Coast to East Coast, but without the 90s hip-hop rivalry, we head to the newest museum on the list, Margate's Turner Contemporary, which was built in 2011. The gallery was built on the site of a boarding house, with one of its frequent guests being renowned artist J.M.W. Turner. You know, that guy who did those sunsets and waves. Hence the name Turner Contemporary. It all makes sense. Fast forward 200 years or so to author and podcaster Robert Diamond joining with everyday racism founder Naomi Evans where they ponder the power of nature and sniff the sea air. So we are now joined by Sarah. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Robert. I'm Sarah. I'm head of exhibitions at Turner Contemporary. How long have you been here at Turner? Oh, gosh. I've been... I actually joined in 2007, believe it or not. So I know. So before the gallery opened, you probably know, we were running a whole programme of um, projects in the town and across Kent. So I was doing some of that. And then I've been working in the gallery since 2011 when when it opened. So you're an original... Almost, yeah, almost. <laughs> the history of it goes back even further than that. But yeah, I, yeah, I have grown up and older Aww. with the project, yes. So we're standing now on what we call the Balcony Gallery, which is on the first floor of the building. So it looks down into the space that we've just been in, but it also looks out uh, to sea, to the North Sea, so you get this view of, of the sea. And it is my favourite spot in the gallery, I think, because because of the view because you have this relationship to some of the other gallery spaces so you have views down um, so we can see one of Sophie von Hellemann's paintings from this space but I think for me it's about that changing view and the changing light as well I actually really remember this balcony in the Turner Prize because Margate had the Turner Prize a few years ago which was the um, scandalous year when uh, the artists all came together and they jointly won the prize it was really cool it was incredible Um, it was a really brilliant year but I remember coming that that show was really intense and I used to find each room quite an intense kind of emotional experience in a way because like Lawrence Abu Hamdan's installation and then Helen Kamek's film and Taishani's installation those particular rooms have really touched me I used to come and look out to see in between each room as a way of like calming yeah, myself down yeah a calming effect yeah. it's like a breathing space yeah. yeah yeah and looking out at the sea on a sort of slightly murky day in Margate and the tide is in I'm not sure if it's going in or coming out I think it's going out <laughs> I think it's going out so um, although we can't see it um, we might we know see it's the there. top of his and head you'll soon. see it later <laughs> yeah uh, and, and so there's a, a sculpture by um, Anthony Gormley 
called Another Time, which we installed on the, on the rocks just opposite the gallery back in 2017. Um, and it was originally meant to be there for, I think, a year, and it's now been extended, so it's going to be there until 2030, uh, so for another um, nearly 10 years. And, I mean, you know, Anthony Gormley is very familiar to, to, to everyone, I'm, I'm sure, but um, is you know, particularly known for these figures that he places in the landscape, so in cities, but also in, mm. um, in nature, uh, in this country and around the world. And they're not, I mean, they're casts of his body, but he doesn't think of them as sort of being self-portraits. They're meant, to, you know, they have a more kind of universal quality, I suppose. So this 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 figure is one of a series of um, 100 that he made in cast iron. And what I love about it is the fact that, A, that it is kind of revealed as the tide yeah. goes in and out. So you have this kind of um, constantly changing um, view of it. But also the fact that, and I hadn't really thought about this when we installed it, but it's kind of been reclaimed by nature and by the sea. So uh, when you get close to it, you can see that it's now completely kind of encrusted with barnacles yeah. and seaweed. And you can still see the kind of joins that they used in the foundry and the sort of process of the making. But it has been, it's, and it's totally oxidised now as well. So it's, it, it looks like this kind of almost alien thing that's part of nature. Yeah. And I really love that. But, so it's quite risky walking up there, but I've walked up there myself and it's got really close to it. <laughs> and it is so weird, like seeing yeah, the barnacles in the way that even since when it got first installed, I saw it then and how much it's changed. Yeah, massively. Yeah. It's amazing how many people come to Margate and want to see it. Yeah, as well. well, it's so interesting because, like you said, it's revealed as the tide goes out. So depending on when you see it, you get this different perspective perspective mm. sometimes you just see a head and then sometimes you just see a torso <laughs> yeah. and a head and sometimes you know I've seen people stop and actually think is that a person yes is it yeah. somebody in there yeah. do they need help it's yeah. a really interesting piece of work there was also a moment quite early on when it came here I think it was in 2017 where um a huge tanker ran aground I don't know if, right. if you saw that there's, a photo but, um, of it on Google, there's an yeah. incredible fo- I mean it was literally a metre away from the sculpture and quite how it survived, I don't yeah. know. I think it made it onto the front page of like the Times or something. <laughs> it the was photo like a shipwreck. is astounding. Yeah. Yeah. And so this figure looks like completely vulnerable yeah. and dwarfed by this enormous... Uh, tanker yeah. that eventually did sail away and there was no damage. Yeah. And that's actually what's so brilliant about even this Sunley Gallery is just the way that nature is so involved and how the artist, when you make the work, you have no idea really how, what the outcome's going to be because Anthony Gormley would never have known that there'd almost be a shipwreck. You no. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> or, or even those barnacles. Like It's all kind of... I love the unpredictability of it. Yeah. It kind of keeps it all really exciting. Yeah. to Robert and Naomi for diving under the waves for us. And if you fancy a trip to the Turner Contemporary, make sure you do so with a National Art Pass as you get 10% off in the gift shop. Now we are off to Brighton. In this piece, we arrive at the Brighton Museum and Art Gallery, which opened in 1805. Amidst the ancient Egyptian treasures and the fine art displays, masters of their craft old and new, the museum offers a place for everyone. Which makes sense, as Brighton is unofficially known as the LGBTQ plus capital of the UK. So it's no accident that actor, comedian and YouTube gem Mawan Rizwan and his mum visited the Queer Looks collection at Brighton Museum, showcasing 50 years of fashion. Together, they share how LGBTQ plus history gets destroyed. And it's the power of museums that help us remember our queer ancestors. 
All right, Mum, so we're entering the Queer Looks yeah. collection mm. at the moment. I see. And we're going to meet the curator. His name is Martin, and here he is. Hi, yeah. Martin. Hi. Hi. I'm, I'm Martin. Juan. Hi, yeah. good to meet, nice you. meet you. I'm Shinaz. Hi, lovely nice, to meet my, you. Nice to meet you. And you, yeah. So you're, you're the curator. I'm curator of fashion and textiles here at uh, Royal Pavilion Museums, Brighton, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, and you're going to show us around because this is the first time I've ever taken my mum to a, a queer exhibition. Okay. So no pressure, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, so this is a Queer Looks exhibition. It's a display of it, what it tries to do is look at the last 50 years of LGBTQ history in the UK, but also very much based about around Sussex because uh, Brighton's known as the gay capital of the unofficial gay capital of Britain. So we had all these stories on our doorstep, so we really wanted to go and collect those stories for posterity. So Queer Looks um, is a collecting project, and all these those stories are told through people's outfits. Here we've got, this is, this is someone's outfit, this is a leather outfit, and these, I mean, museums are where we collect stuff that is there for generations and generations, and we're collecting this stuff now so that we don't lose it. One of the things from this project, or a couple of things from this project, actually, one, how important the older generation of LGBTQ people are for our history today. You know, if it wasn't for those people, not Jason, but also we've got James at the end, you know, who was out in London strutting his stuff in, you know, outre outfits, making a statement and saying, I am out there, I am gay, I do exist. Mm. It was those people that actually allowed us and allowed everyone in Brighton to be stomping around Brighton looking fabulous and not getting their heads kicked in. You know, so we sort of tend to forget, we tend to dismiss the older generation because it's all about being young. But actually, when I was doing this project, I realised actually how significant and how grateful I am for those older LGBTQ people that made my life and your life now, today, so much easier. Yeah, I've had this in the last few years, actually, like a real appreciation for queer ancestors. Because yeah. uh, queer stories are always the first to get killed off. You know, and I, I had this conversation with you, Mum, because I was like, yeah. I really, do, were there any family members? You know, because statistically there must have been, you know. Did you know anyone in our massive family in Pakistan and, or, you know, you, the, the generation previous to yours? Like, you don't hear those stories. You might hear of the wayward uncle who yeah. left the family or, like, you yeah. know, someone who went, the auntie who went to live with a female friend or whatever. But because <laughs> yeah. there's so much shame, yeah. so maybe it feels like clothes are a really good way to preserve some of those stories. But, you know, in our culture, they hide, they are scared mm-hmm. uh, to be exposed. Yeah. So that is why they, they hide. and they, they, they keep on suffering in silence, but they don't share. They don't share? No. We no. don't talk. We, we, we didn't talk about these things growing up. No. It just wasn't the thing, you know. There's just certain taboos you don't go near. You you know that I have accepted uh, from the core of my heart uh, when you said to me that I'm gay. So I want to explore more things which could be very helpful for us to improve uh, our relationship and uh, understanding. When I decided to tell you those things, whether that was about my sexuality, about me drinking alcohol having tasted bacon, which was actually the, the straw that broke the camel's back because you <laughs> you cried when I told you about the bacon thing, but you were fine with all the alcohol and drugs. It's very interesting uh, hierarchy of shock value there. But um, yeah, you know, it's been, I, I, I made a decision that I was going to be honest with you because I think we come from 
a long line of, and a lot of people do come from a long line of lies and their parents don't know who they are and their parents don't know who they are. And I didn't, I didn't want anyone in the family dying, not knowing the true essence of uh, each other. So I want you to know who I am. And then I I felt like it was quite hard for you to process. And we went through our own battles, but then you really rose to the occasion because you were like, well, if you're telling me these things about you, I guess I better tell you about me. And then you told me a bunch of stuff that shocked me even more than I shocked you (laughs) about, you know, your childhood in Pakistan and some of the stuff around your gender identity that was confusing for you growing up and a relationship you had. And I was so, uh, blown away by how honest you were being as well we'll go into more of that later i'm sure uh, yeah. the exhibition will spark yeah. some of that conversation yeah. yeah you know when you told me um that you are gay i was shocked but after a few minutes i thought that how bold you are and i really really appreciate i'm learning from you that how can we accept the truth you never ever hide the things from me, you tell everything, you are very truthful. And it's very difficult to be so truthful in the world. But but I'm learning from you and yeah, now I'm quite happy and satisfied that if you are a gay, you are a gay. I don't, I know or I don't know. And I'm very happy and satisfied that, yeah, we understand each other and we are happy. I'm glad to, but can you please drop the A when you say gay? Because when you say a gay, it makes me sound like a specimen. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry for that. No, it's all right. You'll, and it's great. We're both learning. And, you, you know, you've, you're, you're an ally of the LGBTQ plus community now. Do you know what LGBT stands for? Yes. Go on. Lesbian. Yeah. Gay. Yeah. Not I gay. Not I gay. No, no, Correct. no. Gay. Lesbian. Yeah. Gay. And um, something transgender. <laughs> God, what did you miss there? B. Oh, you missed out bisexual. Oh, bisexual. Yeah. Okay, yes. Now I know. Yeah, and then Q, queer. Yeah. And then plus, all the other letters are covered, so you're safe when you say plus. <laughs> all right, okay, yeah. thank I, you. Oh, I always say the plus. So thank then. you, teacher. <laughs> Thanks to Mawan and his mum for that lovely introduction to Brighton Museum and Art Gallery. And if you also want to take a trip there, don't forget to take your National Art Pass with you as you get free entry to the museum and exhibitions. And after that great dose of queer history, we're at the end of our little showcase of these great coastal museums. If you loved our little snippets and want to hear the full episodes, look up Meet Me at the Museum wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to find out more about the National Art Pass and where you can access discounts and free entries to these wonderful museums and art galleries across the country, head to artfund.org explore and start planning your next foray into culture today. I've been Carrie Morrison, and now I'm off to lay on my nearest beach. Goodbye.